1: I'm Ron Aaron. Our co-host, Carol Zerniel, is on special assignment down in the Rio Grande Valley. So I am flying solo today and delighted to have you with us and especially delighted to be able to welcome a guest on our Caregiver SOS on-air hotline, calling us from my old hometown, Cleveland, Ohio, and my undergraduate school, Case Western Reserve University, where uh, Sharona Hoffman, Professor Hoffman, is a professor of law and bioethics there and a prolific writer and author. Uh, Her book, Aging with a Plan, is getting a tremendous amount of of attention across the country, and we will talk about that as well. First of all, Professor Hoffman, welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air.
2: Great to be here.
1: You spent some time in Houston, so you've got uh, sort of Texas roots
2: I I do. I spent nine years in Houston and and really enjoyed it there.
1: And you ended up at uh, just a wonderful university, Case Western Reserve University, uh, which is in the university circle area of Cleveland. For those who don't know it, uh, the university, although it has grown phenomenally since uh, I was on campus, uh, is set in a beautiful part of the city of Cleveland.
2: It is. We're surrounded by museums and by the famous Cleveland Orchestra, and um, it's, it's just a cultural gem and a great place to work.
1: And I just read that uh, the temple that we used to belong to when I lived in Cleveland uh, just worked a deal with Case Western Reserve University uh, to turn over uh, the facility uh, to your university. It's an incredibly historic uh, building to become part of your theater, drama, and dance program.
2: That is uh, correct. It's, it's a beautiful building, and it will house our theater department now.
1: That's pretty neat. Uh, you are, as I said, uh, a very prolific writer. I had the opportunity to go to your website, and you've got uh, dozens and dozens of papers that you've written, uh, many of which uh, uh, deal with similar kinds of issues dealing with Uh, with health and welfare and caregiving and aging. Uh, And that brings me to your personal experience uh, as a caregiver and how that led into your book, Aging with a Plan. So you're living in Houston and feeling great, and you are diagnosed with a pretty serious ailment.
2: That's correct. Actually, right before the diagnosis, I didn't feel great at all, but um, I... um, developed a very large uh, borderline malignant ovarian tumor at the age of 29. Uh, Out of the blue, I had no idea what was happening. Um, And my mother had to come and take care of me for a while. I had very major surgery. She lived in Michigan. And um, I felt a little guilty about disrupting her life. But I had a quick opportunity to reciprocate. Just six months later, she was diagnosed with breast cancer and decided that she wanted to be treated uh, at MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston. And so she moved in with me for what turned out to be nine months and um, went through chemo radiation surgery. And it was actually a great time for us. We got to know each other as we never had before. We socialized when she felt up to it. We went out, and we were really grateful to have that time together. So that was really my first caregiving experience.
1: And as you pointed out uh, in that video I saw, you crammed her into your one-bedroom apartment in Houston. Makes for close proximity to Mama.
2: That is correct. We had pretty much zero privacy, no alone time.
1: (laughs) Tell me about caregiving, because first you experience it as a patient twenty nine years old, and uh, your mom reverts back to her role caring for you, and then just a short while later, you become a caregiver. Were you prepared for that
2: i was um, I was not prepared for that at all. Uh, I was pretty young and early in my career, but it was it was a very rewarding experience actually because she did get better. Um, I learned a lot about the health system, about navigating hospitals and insurance companies and so on, and about being uh, a support system to someone who really needs it very unexpectedly. And actually, the book... Um, grew out of a later time I had a similar sort of year of crisis or a little more than a year in 2013 and 2014 um, both of my parents died my mother-in-law died and then my husband was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease at the age of 55 And so it's really that period that launched this book that came out in 2015.
1: Wow, you want to talk about stress. By the way, if you've just joined us, I'm Ron Aaron. We're talking with Sharona Hoffman, a professor of law and bioethics at Case Western Reserve University, author of Aging with a Plan, and we're following her course as she goes through an incredible challenge in her own family, caring for her mom. Uh, Ultimately, her mom and dad pass away, and as you just heard, her, her husband is diagnosed with Parkinson's. Uh, was that out of the blue as well, or were you uh, at least uh, suspicious that things were beginning to happen with him?
2: Um, there was a little more forewarning of that. He uh, was not feeling right. He then developed a tremor, which was a clear clue, but you never know if it's a benign tremor or if it's Parkinson's. And in his case, unfortunately, it was Parkinson's disease.
1: And what became your responsibilities as his caregiver?
2: Uh, he's still early in the disease. He was diagnosed in 2013, so we're in the early stage. But uh, this is unfortunately a lifelong disease, a degenerative disease. So we we know things will get worse and that he's never going to get better. Um, and that is one of the things that really got me to thinking about how important planning is, about how important it is to get all your legal documents in place, how important it is to learn how to get the most out of your medical care and to advocate for you or for the loved ones you're caring for.
1: Let's talk a bit about uh, that roadmap as well, aging with a plan, the kinds of things that uh, we all should know. And I think one of the things you talk about uh, is you ought to start this aging with a plan before you need the plan.
2: Absolutely. Once you're in the midst of crisis, it's really too late because it's really hard to make good decisions when you don't know anything about the problems that you're facing and you don't know what your loved ones would have wanted to do uh, if they're incapacitated. So it's really important to have family conversations about these issues. And it's really important to put the legal documents in place that appoint a decision maker in case you need it, in the future and provide instructions as to what you would want in terms of medical care and finances if you can't make decisions for yourself.
1: All of which can be uh, handled through documents that have to be prepared, signed, notarized, witnessed, uh, that most of us don't have.
2: That is correct. A majority of Americans do not have that. And even among baby boomers who are older people, 41 percent do not even have a will, which is the most basic document.
1: And uh, of the baby boomers, you know, thousands who turn 65 every day uh, a huge tsunami of people moving uh, through society, more people over 65 than uh, 18 and under in our society these days. Uh, what would you recommend? What is your plan uh, in aging with a plan?
2: So, um, again, go see a lawyer. There are elder law lawyers, there are uh, wills and estates lawyers. Get your documents done. Make sure that you have a decision maker, that you have a will, that you have instructions for end-of-life care. Um, and also see a financial advisor. Make sure that your finances are in order to the extent possible um, so that there are resources that your loved ones can access and that you can access for, for care later in life. And then I also spend some time in the book talking about issues of driving. Some people shouldn't be driving, but that is a very, very hard thing to give up. So how do you approach that issue? And how do you get the most out of your medical care at a time when doctors don't have a lot of time to devote to you? People run from one specialist to the other, and your care can become very fragmented. So it's very important to learn to navigate the medical care system as you develop more and more problems.
1: Most of us uh, don't have uh, the knowledge, and some would say we don't even have the expertise to try to navigate that medical care system. Uh, Are there people out there who can help us with that?
2: Yes, there are. So first of all, there are geriatricians who are skilled in caring for the elderly, that is their specialty, and they are very good at coordinating care and dealing with problems that are common among the elderly, including cognitive decline, including loss of balance, and all sorts of things that most doctors don't address. So finding a good geriatrician is one technique. There's a shortage of geriatricians, though, so a lot of people can't access them, There are geriatric care managers, and I have a chapter in the book that talks about all sorts of service professionals that can help elderly people, daily money managers, geriatric care managers, and others. But a geriatric care manager is someone you can consult about the care that you need and about how to go about finding it. And then learning to be your own advocate or the advocate for the person you're caring for, so feeling empowered to ask questions, to demand test results, to demand follow-up is also very important because to some extent in our medical system, you have to be a little bit of your own doctor.
1: Indeed, and you're dealing at least with the baby boomers, a generation uh, that is a little more assertive. The the generation uh, that came before, my parents, my grandparents, Uh, sometimes called the greatest generation, uh, put doctors on pedestals, and and I can remember – talking with my folks about issues they were having when they were alive with their physicians, uh, and they simply didn't like questioning the doctor. We'll talk about that in just a minute. Stick with us. We're talking with Professor Sharona Hoffman at Case Western Reserve University, a wonderful uh, institution, a great law school, great med school, great undergraduate. He says that as someone who got his undergraduate degree there. She is a professor of law and bioethics, and we'll come back with her in just a moment right here on Caregiver SOS On Air on 930 a.m., The Answer. It's hard to believe, but this all began in the year 2010.
3: Has it really been that long that we've Dr. been together? Dr. Robin
1: Eickhoff, Ron Aaron, Med Radio.
3: What a terrific ride it's been.
1: And since then, and continuing, we have talked about
3: everything. We've talked about medical issues. We've talked about legal issues, end-of-life issues, and the list goes on.
1: You name a disease, and we've covered it, uh, with answers for people who have it aimed primarily at seniors and their loved ones.
3: Seniors and caregivers and grandchildren and on and on.
1: So why do you like doing radio?
3: Well, I love spending time with you, Ron. Oh, thank you. That's one of my favorite parts. Well, I appreciate it. But that. I like educating, and I like educating patients and family members. There's so many things that we can do with this outreach.
1: So listen to WellMed Radio. And get healthy. Ron Aaron, Dr. Robin Eikoff. we come to you Sunday afternoons at 5 p.m. on 930 a.m. The Answer. We are so pleased to have you with us today on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron. Our co-host, Carol Zernial, is on a special assignment down to the Rio Grande Valley, and she will be back in just a couple of weeks right here on Caregiver SOS on air. We've got a very special guest with us, and I remind our Caregiver SOS listeners that all of our shows are available on podcasts. So uh, if you catch it on the air and want to hear it again, or if you didn't get a chance to hear it but heard about it and you want to learn about, for example, Aging with a Plan and uh, Professor Sharona Hoffman, uh, that show will be available on podcast. You can download it, share it, email it uh, and enjoy it, and the information uh, can be very beneficial to you. Uh, Professor Hoffman and I were talking about uh, how you find the kind of people who can help you, and I'd mentioned uh, that uh, certainly those who are of uh, the so-called greater generation, the greatest generation, uh, put doctors on pedestals, uh, and and in my folks' case, rarely wanted to question a doctor uh, whose decisions they may not have even agreed with.
2: That is uh, correct, and our generation, the baby boomers, people born between 1946 and 1964, need to do better. We need to feel that we are empowered to ask questions. Um, I just had an experience. I went with my husband to his Parkinson's doctor, and um, the doctor was urging him to add another medication. And I listened, and I noticed that he wasn't mentioning side effects. And so I asked, what about side effects? And the doctor said, well, most people tolerate it beautifully, don't worry. And I said, well, what about the people that don't tolerate this medication so well? And finally, I got him to say, well, 20% find that it dulls their mind. And that was just an unacceptable risk to us. But we would have never known about it had I not asked the question, had I not said, I want to know about side effects. Because very important.
1: You take that role of an advocate as a caregiver uh, seriously.
2: Yes, and it is important for people to have a support system and to have advocates go with them to medical appointments so that somebody who's with you can ask questions, can take notes, can talk to you afterwards about what happened at the medical appointment.
1: How did your husband's physician uh, take you uh, pushing him on that issue? You're absolutely right to do it, and shame on him for trying to withhold that information. But how did he respond?
2: Um, he, he didn't show distress uh, <laughs> very uh, clearly. Um, I'm sure he would have preferred to, to not be pressed, but he did answer the question, and he did accept the when we said, no, we don't want this medication.
1: And, and how is your husband doing?
2: He's, he's doing okay. His main uh, symptom now is is tremor, and um, he's exercising a lot, which is extremely important for everyone, but particularly for people with movement disorders with such as Parkinson's disease. So he's very devoted to his exercise regime, and that helps a lot.
1: You know, in some ways, thank you to Michael J. Fox, who has certainly come forward and put the spotlight on Parkinson's disease.
2: He's been great, and it's really helped the whole patient community.
1: So, Professor Hoffman, as we take a look at the uh, wide range of issues facing caregivers and those of us uh, as we age, we talked about perhaps finding a geriatrician, uh, maybe a case manager who can help you through the system. Uh, What about uh, the documents that you uh, uh, referred to indirectly earlier, uh, powers of attorney, medical powers of attorney, uh, end-of-life decisions? What do you recommend
2: people do? Yes, so you you need to have a will so that you provide instructions as to how you want to allocate your money, who should receive it, um, do you want to give it to charity, and so on. You need to have a durable power of attorney for property and finances so that you have a decision maker who can take over your finances and write checks and pay bills and so on if you lose capacity to do that. Uh, You need a durable power of attorney for health care. You need a decision maker for health care who can take over decisions if you lose capacity to make decisions. And that can happen to a lot of people. There are millions of people with Alzheimer's and other dementias. There are people with traumatic brain injuries. There are people who get other illnesses that rob them of the capacity to make their own decisions. So you have to leave instructions and also have a decision-maker in place.
1: And there's some who say that decision-maker should not necessarily be the one who loves you the most.
2: That's correct. It, um, you know, sometimes it's going to be, and that's fine. But sometimes you're going to want somebody who is going to be a little bit more distant. Think rationally, especially if your preferences are to limit care at the end of life you might think that the person who loves you most just won't be able to do that for you because they'll be too emotionally attached. So you have to think very, very carefully about that decision, and it can be a hard one to make.
1: Now, you had mentioned early on to find an attorney to help you with these documents. You see all kinds of ads on television for uh, uh, do-it-yourself legal documents. Uh, What's wrong with doing it yourself?
2: Well, if you can't afford an attorney or you just don't have access to one, there are websites where you can download these documents. You have to make sure that they're the right documents for your state, such as Texas. But an attorney can really help you tailor the documents to your own needs. Maybe the boilerplate one doesn't fit everything you want to do. And so if you can afford it, it's really useful to to consult an attorney, and a lot of them don't charge that much. You can sort of get a package deal for all of the documents that you need Uh, for a pretty reasonable price.
1: And as you had said, uh, look for an elder law attorney. We'll find out how to find one in a moment. I want to remind folks who may have just joined us, we're talking with Professor Sharona Hoffman. Aging with a Plan is her book. She has a number of articles on a variety of issues involving caregiving, aging, and health care. And she's a professor of law and bioethics at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, Ohio. So how do you find uh, an elder law attorney or an attorney Uh, who can do what you need, and who you can trust?
2: So there are a variety of ways. Uh, First of all, ask your friends. Word of mouth recommendations are often the best way to go. Uh, You can call your local bar association, and they will have a list of people that they can recommend. Or you can even do a Google search and get a list of attorneys that are nearby, um, and then... Uh, figure out which one you want to to go to first. And
1: there's nothing wrong with saying, hey, I'd like to interview you and find out if you're someone I can work with.
2: Right. I mean, they're not going to spend two hours being interviewed without charging, but many of them will will have a short conversation with you so you can get a sense of them.
1: Sure. Uh, As you take a look at the documents you need, uh, how do you have them where you need them when you need them?
2: So that's um, a very good question. So- i give you an
1: example. A, a friend of mine uh, a couple of years ago fell to the floor, heart stopped, they got it going again, got it going again, rushed him to the hospital. His daughter, who lived in another state, said, hey, wait, my dad has a DNR. You need to give him the DNR. Well, Nobody knew where it was. I went to his house, couldn't find it. Ultimately, he survived, uh, and he tore up his DNR. He said, you know, I'm glad you didn't find it.
2: Right. <laughs> Um, Yes. So, you know, you need to make sure the right people have these documents. So you should keep copies at home. But as you say, people might not find it if you're in an emergency situation. I have a colleague whose parents' home burnt to the ground and all the documents were gone. And, um, you know, that was a real tragedy because nobody knew what was going on because they didn't have the documents. So your attorney should keep a copy Your doctor should have a copy when you go to the hospital. You should take them with you in case something happens and you lose capacity to make decisions. At least the hospital will have the documents on file in your record. Um, And your decision makers need copies also. So if the daughter was a decision maker, she could show here's the document, fax it over, and, um, and they would follow that. So a lot of people need to have copies. It shouldn't be just in one place.
1: It's much like agreeing to be an organ donor but not telling anybody.
2: Correct, yes. You have to document that as well. And, in fact, um, sometimes the documents for Durable Power of Attorney for Health Care or a Living Will, which we haven't talked about right. yet, also will have an organ donation form attached.
1: And in Texas, uh, you can have it on your driver's license. But what people don't understand, that doesn't automatically make you an organ donor.
2: Um, That's correct. People have to find your driver's license. A lot of elderly people uh, give up their license, uh, or you might give up your license for other reasons. Um, And, yes, there still have to be conversations that take place. um, And so you you should have that in more than just your driver's license.
1: And as you take a look at uh, aging with a plan, I want to talk in just a couple of moments uh, about how you plan for uh, that time when you can no longer live independently or perhaps uh, need to be in a retirement community or assisted living or ultimately nursing. Uh, What kind of documents can make that happen? What kind of conversations do you need to make that happen? Uh, And and how challenging is that? Uh, Because most folks, like it or not, uh, Professor Hoffman, uh, don't have – Uh, insurance that will cover uh, end of life.
2: That's correct. Um, So we hear a lot about aging in place, which is staying in your home um, that you've always had and maintaining your independence. That's not always a good idea. First of all, you can become socially isolated, um, and that is terrible for your mental health and your physical health. And also, a lot of times, the home is unsafe, you have stairs, you have nobody who can find you if you fall, et cetera. So I urge people to think about moving to a retirement community before its last minute, when they can still research a retirement community that is going to be a good fit for them where they can make friends and they can enjoy life. So that's one thing. A retirement community is not necessarily bad. It's not necessarily capitulating, um, and and it shouldn't be looked down upon. The issue of paying for nursing homes or assisted living is a very difficult one because it can be very expensive. Medicaid can pay for it, but only if you're impoverished. And for a single person, that might mean just having $2,000 in liquid cash. So you have to be very very impoverished to have medicaid pay for it and so a lot of people exhaust their life savings um, and it's it's one of the truly difficult problems that society faces and that i hope we we tackle i hope we figure out a way to pay for long-term care hold
1: that thought we're going to come right back to you talking with professor sharona hoffman On Caregiver SOS On Air's Hotline, I'm Ron Aaron. She's at Case Western Reserve University. Carol Zernial, our co-host, is on special assignment in the Rio Grande Valley, so we are flying solo today. And remember, all of our shows are available on podcast. You are with us here on Caregiver SOS On Air, and we are so pleased you've joined us. I'm Ron Aaron. Carol Zerniel, our co-host, is on special assignment in the Rio Grande Valley, and we are talking with Professor Sharona Hoffman at Case Western Reserve University Law School in Cleveland, Ohio. She's a professor of law and bioethics, and we've been talking about aging with a plan, title of her book, uh, as well as a plan that all of us certainly could benefit from as we take a look at uh, end of life. One thing is sure, we're born and then we spend the next many years heading toward death. And the nice thing about it, uh, you can take control of your life and take control of the end if you follow some of the recommendations that Professor Hoffman has made. Uh, As we talk about, Professor, and we're so pleased that you're with us, uh, these end-of-life decisions and this planning, uh, certainly retirement communities, independent living, as you were saying, uh, are also important. And I'm sure you would join with us in in suggesting that nobody – as a caregiver, as a son, as a daughter uh recommend telling their loved one, "I'm never putting you in a home
2: that is correct um, you You should not make that statement because you never know what's gonna what's going to happen in the future uh,
1: and often what's going to happen is what's best for not only your loved one but probably best for you as well
2: that's correct, and there are a lot of facilities that um that are really wonderful places. And I visited a lot of them as I was researching the book, and they have activities, and I've spoken at many of them. They have guest speakers, they have fitness facilities, they have you eat with your contemporaries in a dining room, you make a lot of friends. And so it can be a very positive experience. I've heard people say it's like college without the exams or the studying. And I have a an acquaintance here who's 90 years old just move in, moved into an assisted living facility after losing his wife, and he couldn't be happier. He said, it's such an enriching experience. It's exactly the place he should be in. So it's, it really shouldn't be looked at as as a negative step to take. It's
1: interesting. My mom was in an uh, assisted living facility outside of Cleveland for several years, uh, she was uh, eighty eight when she went into it died at the age of ninety uh, and I remember asking her, "Hey, Mom, how is it?" And she said, "You know, Ronnie, there are a bunch of old people here
2: <laughs> that that is true um huh. so often a lot of the people there are are pretty frail
1: and she didn't see herself of course, as being old,
2: correct, nobody does." <laughs>
1: And, and by the way, before we let time slip away, you have a Facebook page, which I uh, recently discovered, Aging with a Plan, uh, on Facebook. And if you like it, you get all kinds of information, including a plug for this show. And we appreciate you doing that. My pleasure. As you look at uh, new technology, and I know you've got a book coming out in uh, you know, later this year dealing with uh, medical records, dealing with Uh, our cyber lives uh, for folks who are uh, toward the end of their life, who have Facebook pages, who have been texting, who have all kinds of cyber existences. How do you recommend those be handled uh, after their passing?
2: Um, Well, both before uh, the passing and after People do need to be sensitive to to the dangers of of social media. And so after death, you want those pages taken down so that nobody takes advantage. And the elderly are really pretty vulnerable to all sorts of schemes. Even before then, I have a friend um, and his mother just uh, was subject to a fraudulent scheme where somebody called her up and said, your grandson is in jail, give us $5,000 and we'll get him out. And she actually gave them the $5,000 that they wanted without even verifying that her grandson was in jail. Yeah,
1: a lot of people fall for that scam.
2: Yes. So you have to be very careful and Social media can help people stay connected and can be a great thing for them, but it can also make them vulnerable to to abuse.
1: And then in terms of managing uh, uh, Facebook after you die, I've got a couple of folks I know who are long gone, who still pop up on Facebook and still uh, as if they're around. It's a little creepy.
2: your, your loved ones really should take those pages down because people can engage in identity theft and do all sorts of things that, that are not good. Well,
1: that's interesting. I hadn't thought of it from that standpoint. But you're right. If you're still existing in the cyber world, uh, you and your estate may be subject to scams. Correct. Wow. And there are plenty of people out there trying to work those scams, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Now, talk to me a bit about the new book you have coming up. And, and by the way, for those who want to get a copy of Aging with a Plan, it is available on Amazon, right?
2: It is, yes, and also on Barnes and & Noble. And it, it can be ordered through bookstores, but the easiest way is, is through Amazon or Barnes and & Noble.
1: And if you're Amazon Prime, it could be at your house in seven minutes.
2: Exactly. Or something so like that. that. Yeah, something like that, exactly.
1: <laughs> Talk to me about the, the world now of data collection uh, under the Affordable Care Act. The administration uh, is encouraging and requiring more and more medical offices to convert uh, uh, their data to electronics. Uh, and, and there must be issues involved in that beyond just cost.
2: Correct. So the new book, which will be published by Cambridge University Press uh, in December, is called Electronic Health Records and Medical Big Data, Law and Policy. And it does, in fact, address all of those issues. So um, it's about time that the medical world joined the rest of the world and, um, and digitized. But it causes a lot of complications that don't exist for other industries. So, physicians have had a hard time in many cases getting used to having a third party in the room that is a computer. Um, It's very difficult to balance still treating the patient and paying attention to the patient and doing all of your data entry tasks. So, some Patients complain the doctor is more worried about the computer than about me. Um, of course, if you type quickly, there can be errors. You can enter data in the wrong places. So there are a lot of concerns about data quality in this new age. Now, um, I know some
1: practices are, are moving to having like a court reporter, a scribe, who a is scribe, in the yes. exam room taking down the information so the doctor uh, can focus on the patient.
2: Yeah, and that's, that's a good solution for a lot of physicians. You do have to worry about privacy, um, about whether the scribe is doing a good job because they're not medically trained. So are they getting all the terminology correct? Are they making errors? But if they're trained properly, it can be a very good solution.
1: When you look at the challenges then that are faced, Uh, talking about medical big data, law and policy. Uh, Are there enough laws, or do we need more laws in place to protect that information?
2: There are a lot of laws. Um, Many of them need to be tweaked or revised to catch up to technology. A lot of them have been written in the pre-electronic era, and so they're not completely a good fit. And it's just an area that regulators and legislators need to pay close attention to so that they're not falling behind.
1: Now, if you've just joined us, we're talking with Professor Sharona Hoffman at Case Western Reserve University. Her undergraduate degree is from Wellesley College, JD, a Juris Doctor from Harvard Law School and a Master's in Law, LLM in Health Law from the University of Houston. And we've been talking about uh, predominantly her book, Aging with a Plan, and uh, how we take a look at uh, what's happening with the rest of our life. Uh, For those who are interested uh, your book provides a roadmap for the kinds of documents and plans that all of us can use, uh, and, and it's adaptable no matter what your own situation may be.
2: Yes, I certainly tried to make it reach a very broad audience, and there's something for everyone, whether you have a lot of money or don't have a lot of money, and no matter what stage you are uh, in terms of your own aging or caregiving.
1: And in your own case, uh, how... How prepared were you for a plan when your husband was diagnosed, for example, with Parkinson's? Uh,
2: we were, we had put together a lot of the documents because I'm a law professor. But <laughs> um, if if somebody becomes, if a loved one becomes ill at a relatively young age, he was 55 when he was diagnosed, it's a huge shock and it's a huge adjustment to say, now I'm going to be a caregiver for many, many years. I have to learn more about navigating the medical system, and so we still had a lot of adjustments to make.
1: How are you doing yourself? Are you cutting out time for you?
2: It's, um, yeah, it's very important for the caregiver to um, make sure that they do not become exhausted emotionally or physically, and so um, I join him in exercising. I have taken a couple of vacations on my own um, to have some, some time to recharge, right. um, and certainly early on, I, I sought help from a therapist and, and made sure that I had support uh, for myself as well, which is very important.
1: Now, you're still writing, obviously, and are you still in the classroom as well?
2: Oh, yes, yes. I'm, in fact, working on um, my syllabus right now. I'll be teaching two courses in the fall semester, which starts in just a few weeks.
1: Have you been teaching any of the uh, MOOC, the large online courses?
2: I have not yet done that.
1: I'm just curious about it. I haven't either. Uh, I, I teach occasionally at the uh, University of Texas at San Antonio uh, and was curious about folks who do teach MOOCs because they, they seem to be spreading.
2: Yes, I know that we offer some of those at Case Western. I I just haven't undertaken that mm. myself, but I think we all will eventually.
1: Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. Is there anything I haven't asked you you want to share with us?
2: Uh, I think we covered a lot of ground.
1: Well, thanks. And again, for those who are interested in your book, Aging with a plan available uh, on Amazon, and you've got a website uh, as well, SharonaHoffman.com. Thanks, Professor. Enjoyed talking with you.
2: Thank you so
1: much. Okay, you take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Professor Sharona Hoffman at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, Ohio. What a delight to talk to, and uh, she's got a number of distinguished awards, and I encourage you. Uh, to go to her website, SharonaHoffman.com, and take a look at uh, the material that is there. And if you are middle age or older or even younger, you might consider getting a hold of her book and trying to plan the rest of your life and your loved one's lives as well. Up next, Take 10, Dr. Jamie Heisman will be joining us right here on Caregiver SOS On Air on 9.30 a.m., The Answer. It's hard to believe, but this all began in the year 2010.
3: Has it really been that long that we've Dr. been together? Dr. Robin
1: Eickhoff, Ron Aaron, WellMed Radio.
3: What a terrific ride it's been.
1: And since then, and continuing, we have talked about everything.
3: We've talked about medical issues. We've talked about legal issues, end-of-life issues, and the list goes on.
1: You name a disease, and we've covered it, uh, with answers for people who have it, aimed primarily at seniors and their loved ones.
3: Seniors and caregivers and grandchildren and on and on. So why
1: do you like doing radio?
3: Well, I love spending time with you, Ron. Oh, thank you. That's one of my favorite parts. Well, I appreciate it. But I like educating, and I like educating patients and family members. There's so many things that we can do with this outreach. So listen
1: to Radio. And get healthy. Ron Aaron, Dr. Robin Eikoff. we come to you Sunday afternoons at 5 p.m. on 930 a.m. The Answer. I want to thank you so much for sticking with us and joining us for Take 10. At the end of every one of our Caregiver SOS on-air programs, we are joined by Dr. Jamie Heisman, nationally known psychotherapist and expert on addictions and caregiving. And uh, Carol Zernial, who is on special assignment today. Uh, So it'll be just me and Dr. Jamie. I'm Ron Aaron. Dr. Jamie, you do a lot of work over the years on addictions, people with addictions. It seems like every day now there's a story in the national news on opioid pain medicine, addictions, and especially among seniors. What is that all about?
4: Well, let's really start off with the fact that it scares everybody. And that is the fastest growing group of addicts and alcoholics in our country are seniors. And that is much, much different than our conventional look of what an addict looks like or what an alcoholic looks like. So, the, the there fast, is say that again.
1: For, for those who, who are just knocked out by that, say that again. The fastest growing group
4: of addicts and alcoholics in our country today our seniors. And to compound it, when you look at the boomers, those be you know, who have been born between nineteen forty eight and nineteen sixty four, what's coming behind this World War II generation of opiate addicts or addicts and alcoholics is unimaginable and could actually, if you will, even, you know, bankrupt Medicare because we have a whole different mindset. But opiate addiction treatment is a huge problem in the, elder care, in the elderly population, and it actually has a name, we call it, which is the invisible epidemic.
1: Wow. So what happens? Somebody 65, 70, 75, 80 uh, has intractable pain, uh, and, and they're on medication, uh, how quickly do they become an addict, and how do they then continue to get access to medication? Well, it's pretty
4: quick and, and obviously I'm not sure how much doctors have been trained or, or educated, if you will, to understand how this issue of opiates and, and, and painkillers and benzos and whatever they're prescribing for the procedure or for the pain has gone awry and gone amok. Um, it often is totally unnoticed. I mean, and it's difficult for opiate abusers of all ages to admit they have a problem. Once they get prescribed this by a physician or, or even a dentist, Um, it it really becomes the the horses out of the barn. Number one, if you're genetically predisposed, which many of our population is to addiction, you're off and running. And and number two, uh, the signs and symptoms around addiction and and the elderly can be hidden and can be masked. It could be like um, the segment that I did for um, our show. um, When you become isolated, very much isolated, it becomes invisible to the people around you who can actually do an intervention or triage or get you the help you need. And unfortunately, doctors overlook substance abuse in the elderly population because the symptoms really mimic other behavioral and medical disorders, sometimes like diabetes and dementia and even depression. Really? Yeah, absolutely. Um, let's face it, there's a lot of comorbid uh, diagnoses that goes into being a senior when you go see your doctor and opiates have a a worse side effect, I believe, for seniors because it it has these sort of daytime sedative sort of issues and trouble thinking and trouble with attention and memory um, and even increased likelihood of of dementia. So if you really think of all those signs and symptoms, Ron, um, it mirrors other signs and symptoms. And so often it goes unnoticed, and that's one of the reasons it's called the invisible epidemic.
1: Where do folks who may be homebound get access to medication to keep feeding that addiction or to alcohol?
4: Well, the interesting thing is I don't think there's a more cunning, more manipulative, more, uh, how do I say, ingenious population in terms of keeping close tabs with their best friend, which is the drug, than a person who is addicted to drugs or alcohol. They will find it. They will find it. It's pretty innocuous in terms of, of of the way they look. They, As I say, they present in many different ways. And certainly one doctor uh, may be the, the actual source they need, and, and that's all they need. Uh, hopefully they're using it as prescribed. But when they find out that one is good but two is better and start building up the tolerance – um, they become quite adept at what we call doctor shopping, and they really will go and look uh, with different doctors and provide different symptoms and try to get another prescription written. Um, and so so believe me, do not undersell the fact that once somebody becomes addicted, that that becomes their prime mission in life is to stay close to their best friend, which is their addiction.
1: I've mentioned before my uh, late grandpa, Tamarkin, who was uh, pickled nine out of ten days of the week, uh, as I think back. Uh, uh, he used to drink bourbon neat, scotch neat, uh, no ice just uh, out of the glass. And, uh, you know, the whole family would just, you know, fill the glass. Here, Grandpa, have a little more.
4: Yeah, absolutely. And I'm not sure what the year that was or how long your grandfather lived
1: to. Well, this would be in the, in the 40s, 50s, 60s.
4: Well, even then, it was, it was obviously much, much more pronounced. We have some level of education and awareness today. But if you will, we also have this terrible sort of stigma of looking at a, an elderly person on an addiction and say, well, why do we have to get them help? I mean, look at their age. I mean, how are we going to stop their drinking or stop their drug use? But, you know, Ron, we're living so much older because of modern technology, and we we really you know need to look at the quality of life of the people who are aging we can't look at it as if their life is over in fact don't forget this is not just about the loved one who is addicted to the drugs the opiates or benzos or whatever chemical it is it's a family disease and it affects every caregiver it affects every grandchild it affects everybody this is behavior that just spreads and so uh, if you don't take care of the source in terms of recovery, in terms of getting them help, uh, you can bet your bottom dollar chaos will reign in the caregiving world.
1: If you've just joined us, you're listening to Take 10. We conclude each of our Caregiver SOS on-air programs with Take 10. I'm Ron Aaron. Dr. Jamie Heisman is with us. And as uh, I mentioned earlier, Carol Zernial, our co-host is on special assignment in the Rio Grande Valley. We're talking about uh, the epidemic of a drug and alcohol addiction that is sweeping the country, especially, as Dr. Jamie said, and it's a shocking statistic, the fastest-growing group of addicts are seniors, 65 and older. I want to come back to something that I'm sure involved my late grandpa, Tamarkin. Hey, look, you know, he worked hard. He emigrated from the former Soviet Union. Uh, He sent uh, all of his kids on to college. They're all well-married so, you know, he likes to drink. Let him drink.
4: Yes, let him drink. Let him go ahead. And you know what? The definition of an addiction, Ron, and I think everybody should really understand this, not from a DSM-5 or which or a CPT code, which is the psychiatry or the medical sort of way of looking at it, but the definition of an addiction, know you, you've heard me say this often, is to do any behavior despite adverse consequences. So if you have a medical decline, if you have, you know, a chaotic situation with somebody who gets drunk and is is an angry person, Um, if they forget things, if they fall, if medical sort of ramifications happen. These are all observable behaviors, and these are also the definition of an addiction, doing any behavior despite adverse consequences. So I would not give people a pass at all. Um, SAMHSA, which is the, the Substance Abuse Mental Health Association of the United States, over the last 20 years says so the rate of hospital admissions for people who have are taking prescription medications and illicit drugs literally over the last 20 years rose by 100% 100% it's shocking. shocking shocking and the detox is not is detox is not pleasant i mean you have to medically detox somebody off of this and it has to be done in a medically clinically controlled environment there's no way to cold turkey yourself from these medications. I mean, literally, opiates have been called, you know, uh, more accessible uh, heroin for seniors. Wow. But it's very much the equivalent of heroin, of shooting up. And so don't forget, uh, this is a high, high um, uh, risky drug that that literally will take 7 to 10 days alone if the person can survive through this situation for
1: detoxification. So the answer is if you think someone you know senior or not, is addicted, uh, try to get help.
4: Absolutely. And I think that, you know, as a family with common sense who knows a loved one can watch the behavioral decline, the observable decline. I do think, though, not one person can help. I think a one-to-one intervention usually fails. In fact, uh, as I say, with caregivers, the messenger usually gets killed. Make sure the family is entirely involved all have their perspective, all have the observable behavior. And if you want to get your loved one help, let them do a loving, loving intervention.
1: Got to stop um, you right there. And get that person help. Flat out of time. Dr. Jamie Heisman, thank you so much. I'm Ron Aaron. This has been Take 10, part of Caregiver SOS On Air. Remember, podcasts of all of our shows are available. Just Google Caregiver SOS On Air. You'll find them. This is Caregiver SOS On Air on 930 AM, The Answer.
0: You've been listening to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation. Email suggestions and comments on this radio program to radio at wellmed.net. And join your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zernio, for another edition of Caregiver SOS On Air on 930 AM, The
1: Answer. It's hard to believe, but this all began in... The year 2010.
3: Has it really been that long that we've been together? Dr. Robin
1: Eickhoff, Ron Aaron, WellMed Radio.
3: What a terrific ride it's been.
1: And since then, and continuing, we have talked about everything.
3: We've talked about medical issues. We've talked about legal issues, end-of-life issues, and the list goes on.
1: You name a disease, and we've covered it, uh, with answers for people who have it, aimed primarily at seniors and their loved
3: ones. Seniors and caregivers and grandchildren and on and on.